Recorded live. This show is brought to you by TalkShoe, where anyone can create their own internet talk show. Check it out at talkshoe.com. Good morning or afternoon, depending upon where you are listening from. This is IAQ Radio, and I am Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. My co-host here in the studio is Cliff Zlotnick, and we are once again joined by Cyber Jockey and H-Dog assisting us here in the studio. We apologize for the slight delay in getting started here today, but uh, these technical difficulties do crop up from time to time. Today's sponsors include IE Connections, the uh, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry at ieconnections.com, Microband Systems, the microbial management people at microbandsystems.com, and IAQ Training Institute. For indoor air quality training, you trust at iaqtraining.com. We have a great show today with three excellent guests, and we will be coming right up uh, very shortly with Dr. Harriet Burge, Carl Grimes, and Lisa Wagner, the Clean Facts Magazine 2006 Person of the Year. Before we get started, uh, it's always helpful if we get some phone calls or emails in here to the uh, studio. This show is on live every Friday at noon Eastern. If you want to call in live, sign up on the Talk Shoe website, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E dot com. Get your PIN number, then dial 724-444-7444. The show ID is 1547. Or if you want to text us a message or a question live, download the Talk Shoe software and start typing. Okay, from there, we're going to move on to, real quickly, our quote for the day. Don't look down on anyone unless you are helping them up. And I'm not going to give you the name of the person who we uh, found that quote from, and I think some of you may be surprised, and that may be one of our questions for the day today, Cliff. Okay, trivia question. That'll trivia work. Trivia question. That'll work. So the trivia question is, who made the famous quote, don't look down on anyone? unless you are helping them up. All right. We also have uh, some information from the last show we'll bring in later. From the first show, we did get an answer on one of the trivia questions. Still waiting for the second. But first, I'd really like to get started. We have uh, Dr. Harriet Burge on the line, and um, she is the Director and uh, for Research and Development for Environmental Microbiology Laboratory, she is also an adjunct senior lecturer at the Harvard School of Public Health and has participated in editing the entire ACGIH bioaerosols book, also wrote about six chapters of the book, and has been doing aerobiology research for nearly 40 years. She is widely considered to be the leading expert in indoor air quality and has pioneered the field, as I was saying, over 40 years ago. She has also published more than 50 peer-reviewed papers on bioaerosols, fungi, and respiratory health, and is the author of several books relating to allergies and air quality. 
She has also been a keynote speaker at feature or featured participant at many IAQ trade events. And Harriet, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, great to have you here. I'm really looking forward to this, and I know Cliff is as well. Absolutely. <laughs> great. Nice to be here. It's a, a bit of a new medium, but uh, we're, we're going to give it a try, and I'm going to let Cliff go ahead and ask the first question here. Okay, Harriet, good morning. Good morning. Uh, since you began researching fungi in the indoor environment, which of your opinions, theories, and assumptions have changed? Actually, very few. I think that when we first started, we were we were doing a pretty good job. I've learned huge amounts. I've learned an awful lot about how fungi interact with uh, materials in the indoor environment and what kinds of fungi grow where. But as far as um, uh, what the fungi do to people, health effects, which is mostly what I've been studying, um, I'm, I, my opinions really haven't changed a lot, and that's because there's really no new data to to support such a such a change. And maybe you got it right the first time, huh? <laughs> well, we we were off to a really really good start, and you know before I started, there were uh, in the 19th century there were people looking at the possibility that fungi could cause allergies. So I can't claim to have started that that particular field. Obviously, there are many many good people working in the field, um, but yeah, I think we were doing a good job from the beginning. And as I said, we've learned a lot, but um, I don't think there are basic um, Advanced basic new information that's out there that that we didn't that we really really didn't know before. Thank you. I uh, have a quick question. Uh, prior to joining M Lab, uh, you were were you full time at Harvard School of Public Health, or did yes, you I have? Was. A, I I see. And how has moving into working as the director of research and and development for M Lab changed your views of the IAQ industry, or, or has it? I've learned again. I'm going to have to say I've learned a lot. Um, I, I I have never been in in a business situation in my life. I've been a lifelong academic, and so it was a little different um, thought process to balance the eco economics of the situation with uh, with the science, which is really uh, which is really my field. And actually, my role at M Lab is to make sure that that science stays on top, uh, even with the economic um, part of the of the business. Uh, but there are realities that one has to face when you're when you're in business, and all of you know that as uh, as people who work in the field out in people's houses and buildings and so forth, um, th there aren't millions of dollars available to do the kinds of things that you need to do. And so um, I think I've learned that and and changed some of my approaches, backed off a little bit from the hard statistical science. P keeping the the basics of that, but um, but softening it just enough so that we can get our jobs done. Uh, uh, Dr. Birch, do you consider yourself a mainstream or an out of the box thinker, and why? I try to be out of the box. Um, I try to, <laughs> but um, and some people think I'm completely out of the box and <laughs> completely out of the world. As a matter of fact. Um, the majority of people, though, would consider, I think, to be, me to be a mainstream thinker in the sense that, um, that I, I, I base my thought processes on, on the hard science that's out there. And um, uh, the majority of people, I think, do do that. Right. Well, I, I wanted to ask, do you enjoy the research side of things more or the lecturing and teaching side of things? Uh, and can you tell us why? <laughs> I love planning research and thinking, 
developing new ideas and new hypotheses. I'm not very good at routine research. I'm really much better at lecturing and chatting with people. I love seminars, and I love to get together with a whole group of IAQ people and and have question and answer sessions where we both learn. That's probably my favorite part of the job. Um, I do a lot of research. I, I love it when the research all comes together and I can analyze the data. I'm not good at lab stuff. You know, I can't sit there and pipette things into little bottles by the hour. That's not my thing. <laughs> Um, I guess, Dr. Birch, what are your pet peeves either about your peers or the IAQ industry as a whole? What really aggravates you? What? Stachybotrys really aggravates me. <laughs> and um, I, because I think that people have, have developed a belief system about it rather than a logical thought process, hypothesis-driven um, thought process about it. Because... Uh, it's it's driving a lot of the legal things that are going on. It's driving some of the work that, that we all have to do now that we wouldn't have had to do before. You know, it, when I first started, you could go into someone's house, you could assess the problem, you could tell them what was wrong, you could get it fixed, and you could go away knowing that you'd helped somebody. Now you, have, you do all that, and then you go away wondering, oh, am I going to end up in court? And um, a lot of that court stuff is driven by... by um, imaginary facts and that really that really upsets me i get rabid about it occasionally which is Go why ahead. part of the which is why part of the uh, of the iq community doesn't like me i do know that lots of money has been made because of the whole stacky um thing and it may in fact be that mlab has is in business because of that primarily at least it's as big as it is now mlab was always there it was there long before all this stuff happened um and it was doing its its good work from the beginning, but um, I think that some of this uh, panic has driven has driven that, and I think it's a shame. I think it's hard on the population, it's hard on the residents, it's it's hard on everyone but the lawyers. There may be a, a misdirection of of some of the resources, I guess, as a result as well. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's not only in um, in in our area, you know, in in the in the in business area, but in in research. I think there's research money that's going to study uh, problems that are are non-existent. Now, some of that research will will eventually um, make new. There'll be new discoveries made just because. Anytime you're actually deeply investigating something, you know, you come up with new ideas and so forth. So it's not a complete waste, but um, but I can think of better ways of using the money, a lot better ways. I had a quick question on the PCR technology that is becoming more uh, available, I guess, and has been being you know introduced into the IAQ arena. Can you? Briefly give us your thoughts on that and maybe pronounce PCR for me so I don't mess it up here on the air. Polymerase chain reaction is uh, what, the word, what the letters mean, what the acronym means. Um, it's a method for detecting very, very specific DNA. And uh, the DNA, if you have the proper information available, can be tied to the name of a fungus or anything else. I mean, obviously, if you watch CSI, for example, you know they use DNA all the time, um, and that's an appropriate use for it. Um, it's a great research tool. I mean, there's just endless things being done using PCR in the, in the research arena uh, in mycology, in the study of fungi. Is it useful in the indoor air community? Um, I think it's less useful than other things that we already do. 
one problem with it is that it's too specific. It gives you, the, it, you can say, okay, I've got penicillium chrysogenum in this space. Well, so what? You know, how much do you have? Is it degrading something? Is it getting into the air and causing somebody a problem? There are endless other questions. So um, it's really a good IAQ professional can look at the wall and say, oh, I've got mold growing there and it's going to get into the air and I've got to get rid of it. So I think it's overkill in most IAQ investigations. I just don't think it's necessary. It's also very, very sensitive. A tiny, tiny, tiny bit of DNA will be will will uh, light up on this particular assay. And you know, you don't really care if you have one or two even stachybotrys spores in an environment. What you care is, do you have a hundred thousand? So um, I think it's. Um, it's a research tool. I think it's a really, really great research tool in the indoor air field. Last week we had a guest on, Nick Money, who is uh, just whatever. You, everything just blank. Everything just went off. Harriet, can you still hear me? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, maybe we are okay. Yeah, I I listened to last week's show actually. Oh, great, great, yeah. great. Well, I I was very uh, curious about a statement he made about cell fragments and the fact that spores can break into many of these cell fragments. I have begun to see discussion of this issue in other areas, like on some of the chat boards, etc. And I'm wondering if uh, maybe you could help us a little bit with understanding, first of all, how, how do we measure these cell fragments and how do we know they exist? Well, if you're a good microscopist and if you do spore trap sampling, you can see occasionally, you can see cell fragments. Um, I think it's a, um, an exaggeration to say that this happens a lot. Fungal spores are really quite strong little guys, and they don't break up easily. Um, if, you, if you take a wall with stachybotrys on it, for example, and scrub it really hard, you will break some of the spores, and you'll see broken pieces of the spores on a spore trap sample. Are there little teeny tiny pieces that we're missing? Uh, probably, although we've done some work with allergens um, that are not attached to fungal spores, and a very minute fraction of the airborne allergen is not attached to intact spores. And if you count spores and correlate spore counts with allergen concentrations in the air, uh, you get a very close correlation, which indicates to me that the majority of at least the allergen is actually present on the spores themselves and not in these fragments. But I don't deny that the fragments exist. Um, actually, with grass pollen, it's been beautifully illustrated that grass allergens, grass pollen allergens, are born often on very small pieces. But there's a really logical um, logical reason for that. And with the fungal spores, it's just been my experience that they don't break up all that easily. But, you know, he, he they, they certainly do, and you can certainly find them, uh, find the, the, the evidence in the air. It's just, I think, not going to be the answer. When I say that there aren't enough stachybotry spores in the air, people say to me, oh, well, you're not thinking about all the fragments. Well, I am thinking about the fragments. Um, I think they're probably there, but not in high enough concentrations to be the answer to this, to this difficult question. I see. And how big are these fragments? I'm just curious. They... Well, I don't think anybody knows. We were, we were looking for very, very small ones, submicron fragments, fragments that were less than one micron in diameter. And we found some. We found some allergen activity. Now, again, we were measuring allergens, and uh, we're not, not uh, looking at the fragments. 
you really couldn't very well look at tiny fragments like that and know what they are. Um, we found a very, very small amount of, um, of um, allergen associated with those fragments. So um, they can be very, very tiny, but I still don't think that they're an important source for exposure that's causing the, 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 that would answer the questions that people have today. All right, Cliff uh, has a question. Uh, Dr. Birch, in your opening comments, one of the things that you had mentioned was this balance between uh, the academic world and the business world, and the fact that in the business world um, you don't necessarily get grants; you have to account for your bottom line, you have to earn the money, and and so on and so forth. And uh, I came across some con some comments that you had made regarding a study that was done by the University of California at Irvine, and this particular study was on the quantification of ozone levels in indoor environments generated by ionization and ozone, how would you print, I guess, uh, ozonolysis air purifiers. And I was just really impressed with, with your comments, and I just wondered if you'd like to, if you remember them and would, just like to repeat some of them, actually. I don't think I remember that particular thing. Um, I do study, um, I do study air cleaners. Um, I do a lot of research on air cleaners because I'm interested in ways that one could um, reduce allergen levels in homes for, for people who have really severe allergies. Um, ozone. There are a number of, of air cleaners on the market today that do produce ozone. The um, the kinds that actually make ozone are are not. Um, not acceptable to me. They do make too much ozone. I mean, they try to clean the air with the ozone. Um, I think that that's not the way to go in, in domestic environments. Um, there are some that, that produce very small amounts of ozone, and uh, ozone disappears very, very quickly in the indoor environment. And, um, and so I don't have a problem. I use those particular units in my own house um, because they are quiet and um, they do capture a reasonable amount of the um, of the aerosol. I'm not sure that that this is the comments that you were that you're referring to. I don't remember talking about ozone in that context, but I certainly did. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I did. I just don't remember it. Well, what I was going to do is I can refresh your memory. This is okay, what this is this is exactly what it, what it said on this allergy relief website. It said that academic and I, I I believe you're quoted with making these statements. Academic scientists in their protective environments tend to assume that for-profit businesses are primarily interested in the bottom line and only secondarily in effects on people. When we design studies on specific products, we tend to test the hypotheses that whatever health or exposure effect we suspect is in fact present. We should, however, be testing the null hypothesis that the product is not producing the effect that we suspect. Yeah. And I was just, I just thought it was just a brilliant comment. Yeah, uh okay. And I you know, I spent a lot of time preaching that particular statement. Um scientists the, the whole scientific method involves testing the null hypothesis. And I think that investigators, if you're going into a into a space where when you walk in you don't just see mold when you walk in and you really have serious questions about what's going on in the environment that you have to answer. I think the only acceptable thing is to make a hypothesis, decide in your mind what you think might be going on, and then try to prove yourself wrong. And the huge advantage of that is that you're not likely to be as influenced by your own biases. And we all have them. Everybody has biases. And if you go about trying to prove yourself right, it's very easy, actually, to prove yourself right. You can come up with all sorts of devious ways of saying, oh, yeah, I know I'm right, so therefore, and I'm going to prove it in this and this and this way. 
So I, I, that's probably the cornerstone of my entire research effort. It looks like we have a caller on the line. Is uh, Sharon? Are you out there? Uh, yes, I am. I and did. Um, do you have a question for Dr. Well, Birch? I do, and um, thank you all so much for doing this show. This is really interesting to me, and it's a subject I've been researching for a while. Where are you from, Sharon? California. Oh, wonderful. Great. Yeah, and um, I'm actually doing some uh, research into the background documents that have uh, come to be used as the um, authoritative sources over the mold issue. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, one of the documents that I wanted to ask Dr. Burge about was, um, it's called Predictors of Repeated Wheeze in the First Year of Life and Relative Roles of Cockroach, Birth Weight, Acute Lower Respiratory Illness, and Maternal Smoking. Its authors are um, Diane Gold, Harriet Burge, Vincent Carey, Donald Milton, Thomas Platt Mills, and Scott Weiss. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to find out, is this one of the papers that was um, authored with the uh, funding through the Center for Indoor Air Research? No, no. No, that work was done at Harvard. Um, we're not really allowed to accept money from that source. Um, it was funded entirely by National Institutes of Health money. That one was? Okay. Yeah. And so as, lo- as long as I have you on the line, how do I I'm, – I'm researching a bit of this. How do I um, actively research the, the funding sources for these papers? Is there some place out there that you can find that information? or The papers themselves, we're required to, to state our funding sources for almost all of the journals that we publish in these days. Okay. Um, they're actually written into the paper, funded okay. in part by, and, okay. and if it's the Center for Indoor Air Research, you have to say that. Um, if it's uh, National Institutes of Health, you have to say that. And they say in part by, because these funding um, these funding sources don't cover every single penny. You know, the universities end up having to absorb a lot of the cost, and so we, we want to make clear that the the institutes know that or uh-huh. recognize that, but it should be written right into the into the um, paper itself. And then on the EPA website, they have lists. You can look at all the research that the EPA is um, funding. And I don't know for sure that the NIH has that, but I think it does. I think these are. Um, I have to tr- close my window so that you can't hear the <laughs> can't hear the tile cutters out here. Uh-huh. Um, and, I think that the NIH, National Institutes of Health, um, has that as well. The majority of research that I've done in my entire career has been funded by the National Institutes of Health and the EPA. Okay, so do documents back like the year 2000 even, would they have the, at that point, were they required to list their funding sources too? um, As far as I know, yes. It's been many years that we've had to do that, many years, probably since the early 90s. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you for calling, and and please uh, listen in again. We appreciate all of our listeners. Yes, and uh, Dr. Burge, we have to move on, but I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I I hope we can bring you back again sometime. But before you go, is there anything that you would like to add um, before you sign off? Well, I think that multi- I think that the indoor air community is doing a good job, and I think that we need to just keep at it and keep our keep our mind on the bottom line, which is to protect people's health, and remember that um, 
panic that panic is not protecting people's health that we need to be thoughtful and careful about what we tell homeowners and building owners um, so that we don't start panics that end up um, making the situation worse than it was. I think most of us are doing a really, really good job. Most of you, I don't go into the field, so most of you all are doing a really good job, and I compliment you on that. Well, thank you. We appreciate that, and we appreciate you being with us. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Take okay, care. Okay, bye. Once again, I'd like to remind our listeners that you can call in live, as Sharon did, by uh, going to the Talk Shoe website, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E dot com, get your PIN number, and then dial 724-444-7444. This show ID is 1547. I believe, for right now, we have a trivia question from the... Uh, Owner of Microband Systems here, Cliff. Well, well, actually, what we wanted to do is compliment uh, the winner, uh, the the, the person, Mark Brenner from Atlantis Waterproofing and Mold Control, LLC, who answered uh, the question. And the the question that he answered is quite a difficult question. And the question referred to the Latin derivative for the fungal genus Aspergillus. And it actually comes from the Latin word aspergillo, which means to sprinkle or to scatter. It was named this way because the gentleman who discovered it, as I understand, uh, thought that it reminded him of an aspergillum, which is an instrument used for the dispersion of holy water, thus the name. Great research, great answer. Uh, Our second question that still remains out there is we're looking for the Latin derivation of the term stachybotrys. What does it mean? Uh, the other trivia question we'd like to uh, remind you again was the quotation. Who made this famous quotation? Don't look down on anyone unless you are helping them up. All right. Thank you, Cliff. And I believe we have on the line our second guest for today, Carl. Carl Grimes, are you uh, on the line out there? Yes, I am, Joe. Carl, welcome. Carl Grimes, is the uh, he's an author, a consultant, a uh, volunteer and he's got that same uh, disease that a few others I've talked to have volunteeritis he is the uh, author of starting points for a healthy habitat we uh, aren't doing a book review today excuse me we are bringing Carl in to talk a little bit about uh, some consumer type issues and uh, if you don't mind, Carl, I'd like to give them a little bit of the audience a little bit of background on uh, where you came from and why you are involved in this industry. Yeah. Uh, Carl started Healthy Habitats in 1987 specifically to address the needs of individuals who are not being satisfactorily helped by conventional methods. He has developed tools to generate the information necessary for individuals to successfully address their indoor exposure complaints. Mr. Grimes has an intriguing and at first glance contradictory position within the indoor air quality issues. As a consumer, he personally experienced poor indoor air quality and as a professional in the IAQ industry, he has personally experienced poor indoor air quality uh, that others are experiencing. He understands each side of the equation and uh, 20 years ago, apparently, because of a combination of indoor exposures, medical issues, and general ignorance by 
most facets of society, Carl lost his health, his family, his home, and his means of earning a living. He was unable to work for two years. After eight years, slowly passed before he could reliably work more than part-time. He knows what it means to lose it all, and he knows how unnecessary it was. At the same time, this personal tragedy transformed into a blessing. One of the doctors he was working with asked him for a favor. He asked Carl if he would meet with some of his patients who were experiencing similar struggles. That was the beginning of his private consulting business, Healthy Habitats, LLC, 18 years ago. And Carl, welcome welcome to the show. um, We have enjoyed working with you, and I'm going to turn it over to Cliff. He has a few questions for you. Good morning, Carl. Thank How are you? you? Well, yeah. first, first of all, fine. first of all, it must be very rewarding uh, to help people and do the work that you do. Is there one particular client that stands out above all the other clients that you know is the one that that you, that you feel you helped the most or that you made the greatest difference in their life? Well, there's a number of them, but the first one that comes to mind. Um, it happened within the – it was a client that I had within the first year of uh, when I was doing consulting, and I have to add that at that time I didn't really consider myself a consultant. I was, uh, as Joe mentioned, uh, one of the many, 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 many doctors I went to. The one that helped me the most is the one that said, you know, could you do the favor and meet with some of my clients basically to see what's going on. He has a full practice. He can't go out to the house to see what they'll expose to. He knows they come into the doctor's office and he could stop, like, say, allergic reactions, uh, but then they would leave, go to work, go home, and it, the, the reactions and reactivity would come back. He says that he knew that if he could see their office, the home, the school, the car, whatever, that um, he could see something where they were being exposed, something they could do. But in just talking about it, it, it was often misunderstood. They thought he was accusing them of being a poor housekeeper uh, or, you know, being stupid or something like that, so it didn't get very far. It's kind of a long introduction to the answer to your question, but when I, when I first started that first year, this was I was in the same place as these people. I would sit down and I would talk to them. I'd ask questions. We'd compare experiences and compare stories, and I would offer suggestions of what I had been learning over the past several years that had helped me and would say, I don't know if this would help you or not, but let's try it and see. And it was those very first clients that were willing to take a chance and risk, so to speak, trial and error, do something and let's see what happens, that I started figuring out some of the patterns uh, of indoor air. And by the way, uh, your previous guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Bird, Bird, uh, yeah, she talked about the the null hypothesis. I didn't. I'm not a trained scientist, so I didn't know what the null hypothesis was. But in my somewhat fuzzy mind at the time, still not being pretty sick and not being that alert or aware, or uh, not 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 aware, but not being alert and uh, being an expert in it. Every time I would come up with this idea of what might be causing a problem or might be responsible. I would try to disprove it. And if I could disprove it, then I'd keep 
coming up with more ideas until I found something that I couldn't disprove, whatever means, and we would try that. And then use that experience and apply to other people. So all this comes to fruition, so to speak, with one client I had, it was toward the end of the first year, that I went to their house, they listened very attentively, I mentioned a number of things about the house, and I said, you know, you need to do A, B, and C. A and B is real easy, but C has to do with the house itself, so it could be kind of expensive to go in and, like, take out walls or restructure something and remove Know, all, uh, without getting too specific, you know, r r the, the general types of actions of how to identify a source of exposure and get rid of it so it stops the exposure. And I said, you know, get, try this and try that and then call me back and we'll talk about it. Well, I never heard from them. And a couple of years later, I got to thinking about them and thinking, you know, that's probably the one failure that I've had. I don't understand why I've been as successful at it as I have, but that's one I really regret. I didn't do something right. I failed something with them. Well, about five years after that appointment, I got a call from them. And they said, without even me asking, they said, Carl, we listened to you. We tried what you said, the easy things. It didn't work, and we decided, you know what, instead of struggling with this house, we're going to move. So we took what you learned, we learned from you and applied it to finding a new house, and we've been in this house for four and a half years, and it's been great, no problems at all, until two days ago. A water pipe in the crawl space broke, and now I'm sick again. And I thought, wow, you know, I, I can't always judge whether I've been successful or not by what I hear back. Here's one where I thought I failed, and... That's still one of my best clients uh, today. Uh, this is 18, 19 years later. They're still my client when they need me. And what's interesting is that the, is they learn from me, and they learn from their own experience, and that's the key. They learn a process and how to apply it, then they don't need me so much. Uh, they're learning to rely on their own skills and their own experience in an individualized way. And whenever this question is asked of me, Cliff, I, that's that's the client I think of, and why, why, why that comes to mind first. Well, thank, thank you very much for um, that inspirational answer, Carl. I was wondering, is this how do you typically get most of your clients? I know you deal with more difficult cases where people may have a, an individual susceptibility that maybe isn't very common. Where do most of your clients come from? You know, I've lost track. <laughs> I, get, I get phone calls, and I always ask them, how did, how did you find out about me? Because I've really done no advertising. You know, I don't have radio or TV or print advertising. I, I have, uh, of course, the yellow pages and so forth. And um, I get maybe one or two calls from the yellow pages, even during the heights of the mold hysteria uh, and mold is gold phase a few years ago, I would get maybe two to three from the yellow pages. It's all been by word of mouth, and it started with that that first doctor, and then word of mouth with family, neighbors, friends, and then another doctor, and then a third. And at that time, there were only really two doctors in the, in the area here that 
worked with people with environmental exposures from the exposure side of it rather than just the medical side of, well, here's your symptoms and let's treat the symptoms. These two doctors were actually saying, you know, there's evidence here that you're being exposed to something because you react in this location, you don't react in a, another location. So over time then, other healthcare care uh, practitioners became more aware of the issue, uh, heard about it, send me an occasional person. Contractors began calling me. Um, I even, at, believe it or not, was uh, called by several insurance uh, adjusters for help. Uh, I still get an occasional, uh, still get an occasional call from insurance adjusters. Um, I, I, I can't figure it out anymore. You know, Carl, do you work by I, yourself? Are you a sole practitioner? Do you work by yourself? I do now. Uh, I used to have several people work for me doing various kinds of things, particularly uh, cleanups and that sort of thing, because there's nobody out there to handle the needs of, say, carpet cleaning for somebody that's chemically sensitive or uh, duct cleaning for someone that uh, needed a, a, a scrupulous job rather than just a standard job. A standard job works for most people. I mean, that's how the world functions. But when you have a special need, you need a little bit more in order to uh, you know, stop the exposure and get back to functioning normally. Um, that's what wasn't available then. Things have changed a lot, and especially in just the last couple of years. But referral sources, you know, I don't know. I get calls from across the country all the time, and uh, they'll mention the referral source, and I don't know who they are. So I guess that's one sign of, of uh, being somewhat successful. Do you watch that TV show, Dancing with the Stars? No, I don't. Because uh, I figured that you were probably a good dancer because you made this analogy of taking two to tango, uh, exposure and susceptibility, and I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, okay. The way most people think about exposure, that's once they get the idea that it's important and First of all, there's a concept out there that it's important. They need to pay attention to it. Uh, they look only at exposure. You know, what's in what, what's causing this? What's what's creating my headaches? What's creating my allergic reaction? What's creating the muscles, the fatigue, the the the, the mind that is so thick that it can't function, uh, it can't remember? All these kinds of things that people attribute to aging or you know some sort of even mental illness. Um, and the industry that has grown up, uh, particularly from the with, from the industrial roots of what's causing illness in the factory, what's causing illness in the in the mine, uh, uh, in the workplace, it was exposure based, and regulations were set up, and then are really good people like our industrial hygienists would say, okay, these are the known problems, whether it's dust or asbestos or uh, benzene or formaldehyde or some of the really nasty industrial type chemicals. There's a, there is a regulation for it. There's a way to test for it. So we test and we say we compare our test results with the regulation and it's either out of compliance or it's in compliance. If it's in compliance, we don't need to do anything. If it's out of compliance, 
then we need to act until we get the test results that say it's okay. Well, that works fine if you have regulations, if you have known baselines to compare it to. What was happening with originally, you know, 2 3% of the population that were chemically sensitive or hyperallergic or chronic fatigue or something like that is they were reacting to something, but it wasn't, show, it wasn't even showing up on the test as, you know, we can detect it, but it's below the regulatory level. They were saying none detected, and in fact, they would interpret that as there's nothing there. And if the person would uh, persist because they were legitimately sick, they were then told by doctors and public health authorities, look, there's nothing there, and if you persist in this behavior, then we need to send you to a psychiatrist. Well, that's kind of how it evolved, but what, what people were leaving out was what is the susceptibility of that person? At what level do they react? We have this thing called a bell curve, which is a distribution of um, at what exposure level does a, a large group of people, do you see that first reaction, the first event, and then as the exposure increases, you get more and more until it kind of hits half the population or so, and then, of course, the bell curve drops back down again toward finally the last one standing. And that's all, they would, that's all that was being looked at until actually 1989 when uh, Dr. Claudia Miller and Nicholas Ashford uh, did the study at uh, the New Jersey State Department of Health, and they asked a very interesting question. They said, what happens before the first uh, event, the first occurrence on that bell curve? Well, that's kind of a stupid question when you look at it, and especially from an exposure point of view. The first occurrence is the first occurrence. There is nothing before the first occurrence. But basically what they were asking was, is there something else going on that we're missing? Instead of just staying with, you know, looking between the blinders of um, uh, this is what we know and this is what we, under what we understand, they stepped out of the box and said, something else must be going on here. And what they said then was there are people that react to these substances not in just a toxic way but in an allergic way. It occurs before toxicity. There's not as many people that react to it and it ends more quickly, but it does overlap. Furthermore, there's a third one that they called sensitivity. Not many people react to it, but some of that sensitivity starts at near zero exposure. And this is not just self-reported events, this is things that could be physically measured. So they were the first ones that I can see in my research that really started talking about the combination of exposure and susceptibility. So that's why it takes two to tango. You can't have a tango dance without two people. You can't have a complaint um, anywhere, but specifically in the indoor environment, unless you have uh, a person and you have an exposure. So what's the exposure level, and at what level does that person react? Once you start looking at it from that point of view, then you bring in all the science and engineering and all the industrial hygiene, all the regulations, and that's a critical part of it, but it does not eliminate the person. So for, to, to check for a regulation, you don't need to know who that person is except to have them sign off and, and pay the bill. If you start from the susceptibility side, include that, then you start from the susceptibility side and compare the two, then 
you start getting a more complete picture, and you can help people then that aren't being helped by the traditional methods. And the key to it is, like you said, Cliff, it takes two to tango. You need exposure, and you need also that person's susceptibility. And it's got to be their individual susceptibility, not the susceptibility of the general public. I'm a specific person. I may be the only person that reacts the way that I do, but that's my life, and that's what I have to deal with. I'll All right. A short answer in a couple of minutes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. Now, we are running a little bit behind, but I, I can't let you off the line without asking you a question, Carl. Uh-oh. You chair the Indoor Environmental Professional chapter of the IICRC S520. I know there has been a great deal of controversy about this chapter, and I'm wondering if you can, uh, if you are able, maybe you're not because of confidentiality or whatever, to tell us a little bit about what the controversy is and what your thoughts are uh, with respect to how it's been handled. Well, I, you're right. Because of I am chairing that subcommittee, and there are certain, not just confidentiality uh, requirements uh, involved with it, but just the simple fact that there, it's still in, in committee. We just closed, or IICRC rather, just closed uh, the public comment or peer review comment period of about a week or so ago, and the ANSI public review process closed at the same time. So what that means is that all these people, and there's about, last number I heard was over 400 individuals have commented on this document. Um, the IEP issue is one that has received quite a number of comments, but I haven't seen those comments yet. They're still being collated and sorted so that anything that has to do with my chapter will come to me and my subcommittee and we can review them. So in one sense, I, I can't really answer a lot of the question because I haven't seen the comments, so I don't know which all directions it's going. What I've heard unofficially, you know, background, if you will, from personal conversations and so forth, is that there's issues about the IEP that I'm aware of, and there's issues that are being brought up that I wasn't aware of or hadn't thought of. So it's kind of hard to comment at this point, but if you call me back after we, after we get further along the process, I could probably say something specific, but it'd be rather, rather uh, dangerous to say anything right now because I don't really know what all the comments are. I just know that we'll, they're going to be reviewed. Every specific comment is going to be addressed and we're required by ANSI. If we want ANSI accreditation, we have to follow their, their rules and their policy and procedures. And one of those that every specific comment will be responded to and decided that we either accept it or we modify it or we, we reject it. If it's modified or rejected, we have to give a specific reason, and that comment must go back to the person that, uh, that made that recommendation or made that comment. So that's the process, according to ANSI, uh, that must be followed if we want to get accredited uh, by, by ANSI. And I, part of my duty as a subcommittee chair is to make sure that my subcommittee follows ANSI procedures and to do my best to make sure that uh, provide my own oversight, so to speak, to make sure that the full committee uh, and the standards committee, et cetera, follows that process. You know, this is an important document for a number of reasons, and one of them is with that ANSI accreditation, it becomes uh, basically an accepted standard of care, not just in this country, but worldwide, 
So it's important that it be right. It's important that it be an industry, uh, that it reflect the industry, what the industry wants and needs, and that it be developed by a transparent consensus process. And I'm looking forward to the S520 becoming a ANSI-accredited document that was developed by transparent industry consensus. Carl, we would love to have you back and uh, get some further comment on that issue when you can. And uh, I thank you for being here today. Cliff would also like to. I, I've add got a, I've got thing. a couple of, of quick questions for you. And like an attorney, I'm going to ask you just a yes or no question. Those are the only answers that I'm going to accept. Uh, have you found, Carl, that personal trauma or stress in one's life? is a trigger for the struggle with one's environment, with your clients? Uh, that's, the, that's impossible to answer with yes, no, maybe, or perhaps, or anything else. But okay. uh, generally, uh, no, it's okay. not the root source. Okay, good. It's triggered by the environmental exposure. Oh, you think it's the reverse? You think the environmental trigger was... Well, it's, it's the interaction you know, if you have two people doing the tango and one person goes one direction and the other goes the other, they aren't dancing anymore. They'll either separated and apart or they're smashing into each other. Okay. You gotta you gotta look at the combination of both, but I don't see it as psychologically derived. I see it as triggering off all the psychological issues because it's different and they can't get any support from anybody, so it triggers off all those fundamental psychological issues of who am I, what's happening to me, why why me? Am I going to live? Am I going to die? That's that's serious stuff. Well, no, I, I think maybe uh, I didn't express the question correctly. I was thinking that, for instance, let's say a, a marriage and a family are breaking up because of divorce, and that creates a lot of trauma for either one of the children or one of the parents and so on and so forth. And I guess what I meant was, do you think that this trauma or stress in one's life weakens one's immune system to the point that they become vulnerable to the environment that they were not vulnerable before. Yeah, any kind of stress, whether it's external sources or internal sources, whether it's medical exposure, that whole combination certainly plays a role, but to separate out one from the others, you can't do that. And I, again, it's not a fundamental cause. I grew up in a very stable family, and I was devastated by it. But my, my siblings weren't. Uh, I have other clients that way. I have other clients that have had severe psychological trauma for all kinds of reasons and stress, and they don't have this problem. Well, I've got one question for you, and then I'm going to let you go. What products do you use to clean your house, or does your maid service use to clean your house? Water and a detergent that I can handle, uh, particularly one that doesn't have a fragrance. Or as my health has recovered over the last 20 years or so, there are some fragrances that I can now tolerate uh, for short periods of time. But basically, it's uh, soap and water, uh, vinegar, baking soda, simple cleaning products like that. And um, a lot of the fragrance products of any kind, I, I can't, the laundry detergent the same way, I can't handle those. Carl, is there anything that you would like to add or that we may have missed? Uh, do you have another three or four hours? <laughs> we have another <laughs> show, Carl. I know. I know. <laughs> and uh, we um, would love to have you back. Um, well, I'd love to be back. And it, it's hard to get 
short answers up front without getting some background because you have to look at it. I guess this is what I would say to answer your question, Joe. We have to look at this from a little different perspective. If you continue looking at it the same way we've always looked at it, you're going to end up in the same place, and that's that there's a lot of people out there, an increasing number of people that are sick, and they don't know why, and people can't figure it out. But let's not call them crazy. Let's not call them you know, psychogenic or something like that. Uh, let's look at, let's eliminate all possibility of, of some sort of exposure first. And there's a process and a way to go through that, that I've developed over the years to work people through that process so that they know, you know, once in a while it's not their house, it's not their office. That's as important of information as knowing that there's cat dander or that there's mold in a crawl space or that there's, you know, water leaks somewhere or whatever. So we need to, we need to look at this a different way or we're going to end up in the same place, which is, you know, like I started to I don't know what's going on, so you must be crazy. I don't want to do that. And that's what you cover in starting points for a healthy habitat. How can people contact you, Carl? What's your website? Uh, uh, It's very simple. It's just habitats.com. Put the S on it, H-A-B-I-T-A-T-S.com, or my email, which is my last name, Grimes, G-R-I-M-E-S, at habitats.com. What's your phone number at at the office? Uh, 303-671-9653. Carl, thank you very much for joining us this morning or this afternoon, depending on where you're at. Thank you very much. Uh, it, it, you have a very interesting show, and you guys do your research, and you don't ask the easy questions. <laughs> Carl, thanks again, and I will talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Our next guest, I'd like to let... Cliff uh, Zlotnick here introduced, since he is much more familiar and uh, was also responsible for helping bring her on to the show. Before we do, once again, if you'd like to call in, you can go to the TalkShoe website, get your PIN number, dial 724-444-7444. The show ID is 1547, or you can text me a question live. Cliff, I'm going to hand it over to you. Okay, thank you. Our guest this morning, our next guest this morning, is uh, a woman that I know named Lisa Wagner. She lives in California, and she has the distinction of being designated Clean Facts' Magazine 2006 Person of the Year. I want to tell you a little bit about the award. A nominating committee of distinguished industry peers is assembled by the magazine. The committee then has the daunting task of selecting five people that they consider to be the most worthy and then narrowing that list down to person of the year. The nominating criteria for the award is is tough. They're looking for industry leaders who have reached high levels of expertise, who have built a solid reputation, who have risen to a position of leadership, and most important, has made a positive difference to the industry. This award is a big secret. Uh, The secret is kept all year long. The cleaning and restoration industry waits in anxious anticipation until the fall to find out who the winner is. Uh, Lisa, congratulations on this very well-deserved honor. Well, thank you very much. 
And, and thanks for having me on the show. I I took a ton of notes. <laughs> the first well, that's two good. guests were great. <laughs> well, that well, it, it's important because this uh, show actually qualifies for continuing education credits for various certification uh, organizations. But we've got a Joe and I've got a series of questions for you. Uh, I think Joe's got the first one. Yes, I'm I'm not as familiar as Cliff is with the cleaning and restoration business, and. Um, my understanding is there are two places to clean rugs, either on location or in the plant. What are the indoor environmental benefits of plant cleaning to start with? Well, you know, the way we distinguish it actually from the plant side of it, and I'm second generation, so uh, my parents started this company. Um, my son's second generation. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and he's here this morning. Okay. Um, you know, when when you're doing cleaning in the home of, of rugs, and more specifically oriental rugs, uh, there's a couple steps that can't be as thorough as they can be in a plant setting. And the two key ones as far as uh, in relation to indoor environment is uh, thorough dusting because these pieces can, especially if they're wool, can hold a tremendous amount of dry particulate and contaminants inside that you're not going to be able to dust effectively in a home, in a setting with furniture on it. If you can take it to a plant, you can dust it extremely thoroughly before you even begin the cleaning process, which in a plant tends to be a bath process, a full immersion uh, to give a thorough cleaning, and then also a very thorough rinsing so that you can make the piece as residue-free as possible. That's another step that's much more difficult to do in a surface cleaning type uh, on-site method where you're using a truck mount or a portable in the home and, and you're concerned about if you get it too wet, you might get the flooring underneath wet. Um, you're concerned about the dry time, if the dyes might bleed while it's drying. And so there tends to be much less rinsing, uh, so you're leaving more residue behind when it's being cleaned in the home. Lisa, you're describing what is somewhat of an archaic process, going to the home, uh, picking up the rug, taking it back to the plant. And you're telling me that this archaic, ancient process of cleaning rugs is more thorough than expensive truck-mounted carpet cleaning machines that most of the industry uses today? Yes, I'm saying that. Okay. <laughs> well. and, and the difference is, you know, and I do a lot of, of training with, um, you know, I, I've been associated with the carpet and upholstery cleaning industry for over a decade as far as being involved with associations and being involved in, in sharing what knowledge I have from our side of it, which you've been washing rugs this way for generations and generations, and share it with the in-home cleaners. And what I've found through the courses that I've taught is that once I get somebody who's an in-home cleaner to actually do a wet wash and do it off-site, um, that they morally have an issue going back to surface cleaning because they know after they even thoroughly surface clean a piece, they're aware that they can get it even cleaner, looking better and to touch, you know, much cleaner hands to the fibers, uh, can peel open the pile and see that there is literally less dirt in the foundation. And so you get that moral issue to where you just can't do on-site cleaning anymore. And I've, I've seen that happen time and time and time again. You know, one of the things that concerns me, just to build on your comment a little bit, is there 
one of the things I'm concerned about is there tends to be a loss of general generational memory within the industry. You know, the old guys knew stuff. And uh, I like your approach to going back to basics because we got it right the first time. You know, why mm-hmm. change it? Absolutely. I mean, it isn't very complicated, and that's, you know, when I share it in the venues that, that I teach is that the steps are very simple. Uh, it doesn't mean it's easy. It's definitely much more labor-intensive. It definitely costs more to have the piece properly cleaned in an implant setting. It's... Um, you know, the, people will complain that it's more inconvenient to the clients, but you know, my clients are very happy. I have high repeat business, and you know, they're just concerned about. They have a textile that they care about, um, that some people have invested a lot of money into, or they spend a lot of time picking the perfect piece for their setting. They want to make sure that it lasts long enough that they can pass it down to their kids, who can turn around and pass it down to their kids. Cool. Uh- how would, say, for instance, my wife or uh, a client find a, a good rug cleaner? Well, you know, I get that question a lot, and uh, I, I'm not exactly sure everybody finds out how I exist, but I get consumers calling me from all other states and sending me emails asking me, how can I find um, a good cleaner in my area uh, or are willing to ship their rug to me to clean, which is you know can be exorbitant. Um, where I start, I, you know, I have a referral list of rug cleaners who I know personally that, of course, are on my directory list that I'll use as a referral first. If it's an area where I'm not aware of a rug specialist, uh, then what I'll do is I'll go to the ASCR website first, and they have a division. It used to be the National Institute of Rug Cleaners. Um, it's now, I believe, the, the Textile Cleaning Council. Um, but there's a list in there of certified rug specialists, which is a designation that I hold, and there are about 70, I believe, uh, in the U.S. and U.K. who have gone through that certified rug specialist course. And I know anybody who's been through that course is is much more knowledgeable about rug construction and rug care and have a larger network of people to rely on when they come in contact with a textile that has some mysteries or has some tests that aren't uh, coming up as would be expected and could lean on other people for input. So I'll always go to the certified rug specialist list first, and if there's one in their area, tell them absolutely. You don't need to question this. Just use this person. Beyond that, ASCR members um, that, that indicate that they do rug cleaning um, referrals are always the best place to go first. So, you know, you ask other people that own textiles who they've been happy with. And absolutely, no matter who it is, go take a look at where their shop location is to make sure that they're actually doing what they say they're doing because there's a lot of people that advertise that they do hand wash of rugs. But then when you go in there, you see that they don't have a facility for it and they're just going in the back and running a truck mount over it or, um, yeah, or shipping it off to a subcontractor that you have no idea where your piece is going. You'd expect to see work in progress. That's a good idea. Yes. Yeah. Y- what, you need to see how it's going. What types of equipment should they see? Well, you know, it could be as simple as in in my shop. I have a large cement slab that's you know at a slight incline that has a raised perimeter so that you can close the drain and literally immerse the piece. Um, something for dusting, which could be on the low end, uh, something like a commercial vacuum cleaners, 
to high-end automatic dusting machines. Some locations, some plants have a fully automated cleaning system. Uh, we're more, uh, a bit more hands-on. We wash the pieces one at a time. We do have a wringer to remove the uh, moisture from the rugs. We dry all our rugs out flat. Um, so as far as from an equipment standpoint, it could either be uh, a very high-end, fully mechanized type of equipment setup, or it could be simply just a couple key small pieces. It, it isn't so much the equipment makes you more efficient in some respects, but it's the knowledge that's more important. And so coming in and seeing how pieces that have been finished, how they look, um, whether they're taking care of the textiles or whether they're all piled up in a corner and don't look like they're being, you know, well-respected in the environment setting. You can tell when that's one thing with in-home carpet cleaning. If they pull up in a van and the thing is filthy and there's trash all around their equipment before they're coming in to clean my home, I don't want that person in my home. <laughs> you know, If yeah. they're in the cleaning business, their place should be clean. Uh, someone's just texted us uh, a couple of questions that we'd like you to answer. Right. Uh, I'm not sure whether this person's name is S. Champ or Champ, I'm not sure, from the email. Uh, their questions are, what is done to minimize exposure to chemicals from the cleaning products? And I would suspect that this would be to the homeowner. And well, the, the second part is, do, do you have options for dealing with someone that might be chemically sensitive? When we have clients who are chemically sensitive, we, you know, the line of that we personally use is uh, biodegradable, um, non designated as non-toxic line. It's it's a mild shampoo. We do use vinegar to stabilize the dyes during the um, wash process itself, um, and then a, a thorough clear water rinse or a vinegar clear water rinse, uh, flood rinse to get as much of the shampoo out of the piece. Um, the vinegar also helps to remove. Uh, some of that residue from the fibers as well. I've got a question for you, mm -hmm. and I'm going to put you in a corner. Would you be willing to wash your own hair with the same detergent you used to wash the rugs? Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's a shampoo, and, okay. it, and it could be used on it could be used on your hair. Good. Before I forget, Lisa, can you quickly, if you would, uh, let us know how people can contact you if they're interested in these types of issues and questions and maybe a referral or to send you some work. Do you have an email and a phone number that we can publish? Yeah, yeah let me give you um, the email. If anyone wants any rug care tips, I can email out people a couple sheets of just some regular care tips that Thanks, I send out to consumers. The, web, the email would be rugcaretips at AOL.com. So R-U-G-C-A-R-E-T-I-P-S at AOL.com. Um, phone number, uh, uh, and I'll give you my office, though. I'm, I'm not in there all the time, but our office here in San Diego is 858-566-3833. For those that missed it, 858-566-3833 and rugcaretips at AOL.com. Um, I've got a couple of questions for you, Lisa. I want to change subjects and actually move into some of the association work and your activities there. Would you consider yourself an advocate for trade associations? Uh, if so, why? And how long have you been involved with trade associations? I'm, I definitely consider myself an advocate for trade associations. I, th I think that in looking back in, in my career, 
um, that the choice to become not only member of various trade associations, but to become active in the actual operations of it has has been a huge benefit to me as far as my personal development, um, for my business, and for just my knowledge base, being able to be in contact with so many really interesting, active, dynamic people. Uh, I've been involved in associations for over 12 years. I've, I've been a member of CFI, which is the Carpet and Fabricare Institute. I have served on that board. This is my 10th year. Uh, I'm a past, the immediate past president. Um, I've been an ASCR member for years uh, in their Oriental Rug Division. Um, I'm WFCA member for years and am serve currently on the IICRC Certification Board of Directors. And um, so, yes, I've I've been around been around for a while. What types of things may cause you some frustration about this volunteer work? I, I know I do quite a bit, and I get occasional frustration. Do you have the same problem? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I think whenever Funny you, you should ask. I, yeah, I, th- I think whenever you get uh, a lot of people together, um, especially a lot of people who are used to being their own boss, and then put them in an environment where now we're supposed to work together as a team and uh, find a compromise um, that you have a couple dynamics that happen. You either get a, a really big split of blue team, red team type, uh, you know, we're not going to give up any inch at all because if, if I, you know, if I waver, then, um, you know, that's going to somehow uh, tarnish my reputation. Um, what What I found with a couple of the groups that I've been on is that initially that kind of, of aggression that can happen purely from staking your uh, position on, on certain opinions and taking things personally rather than taking it just as an issue of, of facts and different sides and trying to craft some compromise so everyone as a whole can benefit is that a lot of good people get scared off in the very beginning. And, and I've seen a lot of Good directors come on to um, even my regional trade associate tr- trade association with CFI, um, and on a, a bigger extent on, extent on IICRC come on, can't take the heat, and then turn around and run away as as quick as they came in. Um, and so the the struggle is, and what I actually enjoy taking part in, is trying to listen to both sides. Uh, get the facts out there and try to see if there are some ways to bridge that gap and um, have had good success with that in my current role in CFI. Um, I also have a phenomenal team that's on the board of directors right now with CFI. We have a great president. We have a very good one coming in to take his place next year. And with IICRC as well, a, a lot of um, you usually see the press on on the negative things, but there's a lot of good happening there as well. And uh, that's one thing I like to do also is, um, though I like to point out some things that I'm not happy with um, because I, I like the openness, I like transparency, um, I also like to give kudos to the good work that's going on because it tends to not get as much uh, market play as, as some of the things that people aren't happy with. I got a question. You know, some trade associations, there are many of them, many of them in a variety of industries. They seem to have the same people that are there forever and ever and ever. And you know, I think 
you kind of wonder sometimes what is the motivation of doing this volunteer work and get nothing but abuse. <laughs> well, I guess if you get nothing but abuse, then you need to start asking yourself whether you're a masochist, and that's why you know that's why you're staying there. Um, I personally, you know, find it very rewarding. I mean, I, associations. Well, you, you know, you have two paths. You can either sit on the outside and complain about how you don't like anything that's going on in your industry and continually use that energy to point out the wrong things, or you can get off your butt and get involved and try to make a difference. And, um, you know, I'm wired to, if I see some things I'm not happy with or maybe some areas that I can contribute to, to jump in, even if I'm super busy with everything else because I have a couple companies I run beyond the volunteer work that I do and try to make a difference and be able to see when your efforts are not producing any results. And if they are not producing any results and you gave it as good a try as you could, then you should jump out and see are there other avenues that you can make a difference in as opposed to the place that you tried, but at least you gave it an attempt. And um, so I've never seen any of that work as thank as thankless. I have some great long-term friendships that I've developed in all of my board roles. And, uh, you know, this business, like any business, is all about the people. Ultimately, it's about the people, whether it's your clients, whether it's your team members, whether it's your industry peers, whether it's your mentors. And, uh, you know, for me, it's it's all part of this community we're part of. And, uh I, I wouldn't change my involvement at all. Well, I, I thank you very much for bringing out those positive aspects of volunteer work, and I think that's an important thing to uh, emphasize as a part of our show. We do tend to look at the negative side of things quite a bit, and I can see now why you were nominated as the Clean Facts Person of the Year. And um, I would also like to ask you before we go, is there anything else that you would like to add or anything we missed? Well, you know, the only thing that I would add would be for anybody who who might be thinking about being involved um, in an association, it's always been my experience that the more you give in, the more benefits you reap. And that doesn't necessarily mean pocketbook benefits of uh, in, in that vein, but uh, definitely increasing your network, creating better relationships, and more importantly, getting a really big picture of the front stage and the backstage of what's going on in your industry. And because that bad press does uh, get a lot of dramatic play down, then it, I think it scares off a lot of people who don't want to get in the midst of politics. And it's it's not as bad as they purport it to be, and I would encourage uh, anyone to uh, consider contributing in that way. Thank you very much. All You're right. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, that pretty much concludes our show for today. I'd just like to remind people that uh, our sponsors today were Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry at ieconnections.com, Microband Systems, the microbial management people at microbandsystems.com, and IAQ Training Institute for the indoor air quality training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Our shows have now been approved for certification renewal credits through the American Indoor Air Quality Council. If you would like more information on that program, 
please feel free to email us at info, I-N-F-O, at iaqtraining.com or email me personally at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. And that concludes our weekly broadcast of IAQ Radio, and uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you, Cliff. See you next Friday. See you next Friday. It's a wrap.